Good morning, FCBC Walnut family and friends. Thank you for continuing to prioritize corporate worship by gathering in your homes and joining us online. This week marks the last Sunday of the month, so we will be participating in the Lord's Supper together after praising God through song. Before the praise team leads us in singing, I want to highlight a few announcements from today's digital bulletin, which you can access through the link below. The English and youth meet separately on Wednesday nights for prayer. These midweek gatherings have given us the opportunity to seek God's face, be reminded of His faithfulness, and also bear each other's burdens. Please join us, especially as we are now the church scattered, so that you can continue to be connected. We are continuing to take the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, which goes to support the church planting, disciple-making, and compassion ministries of the North American Mission Board. Our church goal is $35,000, and we have collected almost $7,000. If you feel led to give, please designate towards Annie Armstrong. The COVID-19 relief team to date has received 14,423 masks and PPE donated and has turned around to supply 35 healthcare facilities and essential organizations. Praise God for his generous provision. We are still collecting PPE and non-perishable items, which can be dropped off at church on Sundays from noon to 2 p.m. by appointment only through emailing relief at fcbcwalnut.org. If you need help from our volunteers or any assistance as it relates to this crisis, please contact us via email as well. Finally, if you want to contribute financially towards our relief efforts, please designate towards Compassion. Our church is hosting a Red Cross blood drive on Wednesday, May 27th from 1 to 7 p.m. Please see the digital bulletin to schedule your appointment using the link and sponsor code. May God continue to give us opportunities to be a blessing to our community. Last but not least, Pastor Chiho will be taking a sabbatical leave in three one-month segments starting in June to reflect, rest, and pursue doctoral studies. Please pray for him and grace as they prepare for this transition. Please join me now in prayer as we continue to seek God's face through this COVID-19 crisis. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for today, for the privilege and opportunity to gather as your people online. We thank you, Father, ahead for the preaching of your word, for the opportunity to sing praises to you with our voices and with our hearts, as well as to pray in response and to pray in seeking and to pray in obedience of trusting and depending upon you in every way, especially through this COVID-19 crisis. Father, we are reminded that our beatitude for this month is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So help us, Father, wherever it is that we are at, in our homes, in our community, at work, and even online, to be bearers of the peace that you have given to us through the work of Christ and his death and resurrection to create the new covenant for your people. We look forward to his return, but Lord, until then, we pray, Father, that you will continue to empower and change and convict us in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that we would desire his return evermore. God, help us, God, to be people of peace in the things that we do and say, and help us to be people that love you and love our neighbor every single day. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to anchor us in your promises of good for your people, working all things together. And we pray also, Father, that you would use us to be a blessing, God, to all those that you give us the privilege to touch in our lives with our words and in our prayers. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.
Welcome to the online worship of First Chinese Baptist Church Walnut. It is our prayer that you will encounter God in the praises, in the prayers, in the sermon, in the message, in the communion today. Psalm 66 calls us to worship. Psalm 66 verses 1 to 4 says, Shout with joy to God all the earth. Sing to glory to His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bounds down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we bow down and worship you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We come together to lift up your name. The name above all names that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. May you be pleased with our worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we observe the communion today, let me read to you a familiar passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord that I also pass on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, in this passage, we are reminded about five things about the Holy Communion when Jesus instituted the first Holy Communion. First of all, Paul says it is received from the Lord on the night he was betrayed. You know, from the time of Jesus' betrayal on the night that he instituted the Holy Communion until now that Paul penned 1 Corinthians, 20 years has transpired. And the Holy Communion has been fully embraced into the church life, into the worship. And secondly, he reminds us that this is what he received from the Lord and he delivered, he passed on to you. Whatever we receive from the Lord, the way we do Holy Communion is passed on exactly as it is from generation to generation. And thirdly, the bread and the cup symbolizes Jesus' body given to us and Jesus' blood shed for us. What he meant is when he says, I give my body to you, I shed my blood for you, means he died for us. He died, he took the penalty for our sin so that we can be reconciled with the Father. And fourthly, it reminds us that the purpose of the remembrance of the Holy Communion is to remember the Lord. Our focus is on Jesus Christ and his cross. And finally, fifthly, this tradition, this ordinance is to last until Jesus comes again. So keep doing it, whether in body, whether in physical body in this building here, or we are scattered in our respective home, we will observe the Holy Communion in remembrance of the Lord. You know, as we come together, we pretty much observe as closely as we can to what Jesus has passed on to us, to Paul and to the church today. But one thing is kind of missing in the whole context of this passage is the coming together. We are scattered in respective homes. But in this passage here, five times 
Paul mentioned of the coming together, coming together for the love feast, and followed by the holy communion. In verse 17 and verse 18 and verse 20 and verse 33 and verse 34, five times he mentioned coming together as a church. You know, as we move on, as we continue with the safe-at-home order, slowly we are coming to a new normal of worshiping online, of prayer meetings online, of small groups online. But one thing is missing. One thing is missing. That when we continue to have online worship and online prayers, we miss the Christian community of one another in person, which is much more impactful. We miss the dynamic of singing together and praying together in person. And we miss the power of life preaching and life teaching and the interaction that we can have when we come together back to the church. So today, as we observe the Holy Communion, one more thing that is missing is the coming together. And we look forward to the day when the safe-at-home order is being lifted and we can come back together to worship in 1555 Fairway Drive, City of Walnut, and coming together as a church family to observe the communion together. And right now, as we come together for the Holy Communion, I want to invite you in your respective home to just bow down and pray in confession because the scriptures reminds us that we need to examine ourselves lest we eat and drink our own sin. So let's spend a moment before the Lord in confession. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, as we come together, we just want to thank you for allowing us to observe Holy Communion as a church, as a body of Christ, even though online, and yet we are able to, to come together to remember the Lord and to proclaim your salvation that has been given to us by grace in Christ through faith alone. As we come together, we are aware that we are men and women of unclean lips and we live among men and women of unclean lips. And we do sin against you and we do sin against other people. So Father, we pray that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we have confessed our sins. And thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you for the cleansing power of your blood that when we come before you in confession, you will be faithful and you will be righteous and you will cleanse us from, from all unrighteousness. And as we come before you, we just pray that you will allow us to grow deep in you as we reflect on the glory of the cross, on your sacrifice of how you give your body for us and how you shed your blood for us. Thank you for listening to our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to remind you that the Holy Communion is for the born-again Christians who are baptized into the church. So if you are not baptized yet, uh, you can observe together with us with your heart in your spirit. And I want to call upon you to get ready the elements of the bread and the cup and be ready to observe the Holy Communion together. I also want to invite those of you who are observing the Holy Communion to stand respectfully in your respective locality 
as we observe this time together. We are reminded by the scriptures, Jesus said, this is my body for you. Take in remembrance of me. Let's take together to remember the Lord. After supper, he took the cup and said, this is my blood for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together to remember the Lord. Let us together still remain standing to conclude the Holy Communion with the prayer of the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thy is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's prepare our hearts to the preaching and exposition of God's Word together. Good morning, church. I've entitled today's sermon, Awakened by His Warning, Transformed by His Love. You know, most of you are sitting at home in your living room or in front of a computer or in front of your phone and we've realized how COVID-19 has changed things. COVID-19 has awakened, in many ways, our awareness of God. So maybe this morning, you're a non-Christian, and somehow someone invited you, sent you a link, or you found us online, and you're listening in, because you have spiritual questions about where God is, what God is doing behind, behind all of this, why loving God would allow such a disease, or how he would use this for his good purposes. I'm glad you're here. Uh, maybe some of you, you've grown up in the church, but it's been decades, years, decades since you've been back, and COVID-19 has led you back to, to see and to plug in to see, hey, what is God doing? What, what are some spiritual lessons that, 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 that you're checking in to kind of find out about? And, and maybe for some of you, you've been attending church every single Sunday. You faithfully give. But we all understand, we know how busy life is. And the business, busyness of life and the busyness of your work or your family, it kind of revealed to you, now that you have more time to think, that wow, maybe you were living a mere Sunday Christianity. And so now you're checking back in. Now, if, if that's you, and we haven't seen you for a while, we haven't met you, and if you're watching this through our Facebook premiere, feel free to leave a comment if you feel comfortable. Feel free to ask a question about God, a spiritual question, anything you'd like. Uh, feel free to leave a prayer request, and one of our pastors, one of our members will respond to you at some point. So thank you so much. Now, I know there's so many of you who are listening in or you're watching this, and 
You're a Jesus-loving person. You love Jesus. You love the church. And now your faith has been tested. Your faith has been tested in terms of family life. Your faith has been tested in terms of your health, possibly. Your faith has been tested economically. And I know that so many of you who are able to give, you continue to give. And this is just one example of how things have changed. You're giving purely out of devotion. Just think about it. You're giving offering, but you're not getting much in return in terms of the use of a facility or a church building. Pastors, even if we wanted to visit, we're not able to go into the hospitals or the nursing homes at this time, uh, and we're not able to, to visit you except by, uh, unless we, we, we give a call, a message, a video chat, right? There's a, there's a level of a distance, yet many of you continue to give faithfully even without all of our programs and everything that our church is used to offering. So this is a time where the Lord is awakening our faith. And I chose the title, Awakened by His Warning and Transformed by His Love, because we are nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, next week will be our final message from Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. And in today's passage, according to our schedule, Jesus gives a strong warning. One of the strongest warnings in all of the New Testament. He warns of future judgment against false prophets. And by extension, this applies to all forms of false Christianity. But in the backdrop of this warning... As strong as this warning is, there is a loving and gracious Savior. You see, the very person giving this warning will, chapters later in Matthew, go to the cross and he will give his own life to offer salvation to all sinners, anyone who's willing to turn to him in repentance and faith. So here's what I want, want to take, here's where I want to take us today. My aim today is to show us that Jesus' warning against false Christianity is actually very gracious. Because in his false warning, he awakens us to his terrifying yet transforming love. You see, in the cross, we see the love of God in the most terrifying way. We see the wrath of God poured out, not on a wicked person, but on a righteous and innocent, perfect person, the Son of God. We see in the cross the love of God in the terrifying cost of our repentance. When we see an innocent and righteous Savior die, we realize that none of us and none of our good works could save us. And the cost of our repentance was a loss of life, but it was a loss of a, of a perfect person. The cross is terrifying because of the judgment. And when we look at Jesus, we see what was reserved for us. It was poured out on Christ. Yet, it took the death of an innocent Savior for us to see this judgment, and that awakens us. Apart from the cross, we would not be awakened to the weight of our sin. We would not be awakened to how desperately we need God we would continue to live independent lives, lives independent of our creator, and we would continue to pursue our own purposes in life. But in the same way, here's what God is doing with COVID-19, behind COVID-19 and with COVID-19. There's some theologians who, from the reform circles who say that God has ordained COVID-19. There are others who say that God has allowed COVID-19 and he will use it for his glory. Either way, we believe in the complete sovereignty of God. 
And the sovereignty of God through the cross reveals to us that, that God will use suffering and death even upon the righteous, namely his son. And I believe that God has ordained all things in life. And we in our human minds cannot understand. We won't understand until we get to the other side and we see him face to face. But here's what God is teaching us and showing us. The loss of life is painful, and some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you are sick, and the loss of life is painful. But the Lord is showing us that his purpose for our creation is so much more than physical life. And the loss of life and the disruption of our livelihood is sometimes what is necessary to awaken his people. And so what we've seen in something as serious and as devastating in COVID-19 is an awakening for a sleeping church. So before we get to the Sermon on the Mount passage, I want to take you to another passage. I want to, there's two passages I'm going to look at today. I want to begin in Luke chapter 13 to set the tone of divine warning. Because while our Sermon on the, on the Mount passage is geared towards namely religious people, and I'll explain that to you, and, and that passage is going to be scary for people like me who preach the Word of God, I want you to see Luke chapter 13 where Jesus gives a similar warning, a strong warning that applies to all people. But what I want you to see this in this passage in particular is that God allows for the death of the righteous people. God does not discriminate when it comes to allowing natural disaster, calamity, terrorism, evil, and bad things from happening to good people. You see, I think for most of us as, as human beings, when, if you were to turn on the news tonight, and if you were to see calamity happen to a, a murderer or a terrorist or an evil person, I pray that you wouldn't rejoice in it, but you would find more peace, and you would probably think, you know what, he or she had it coming to him or her. They deserve that. But what doesn't make sense a lot of times is when you have good people, innocent people, good people who are doing good deeds, Christians, doing God's work, and God allows them to contract COVID-19 and die. God allows them to fall victim to a natural disaster in another case. Why would God do that? And that, also, that reminds us of God's purpose, that you take the good person, why are they good? We see that they're good because of their good works, because of their righteous character. And when we look at that, God is showing us that no good works on this earth will save you from physical calamity and death. All will die in some way. And what God offers us is not through our good works, but through his work on the cross, through his son, eternal life, a spiritual life. So I invite you to take God's word and turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, where I want you to see point number one this morning. Point number one is the death of the righteous awakens the repentance of sinners. Yes, that's what I'm saying. The death of a sinner doesn't awaken us. The death of a sinner merely tells us, oh, that's right, that's justice. That's, he's a sinner, she's a sinner. She died, he died. It takes the death of the righteous to awaken the repentance of a sinner. That's point number one. Now, we're drawing this from Luke chapter 13, verses four and five. And when I say righteous, I know that nobody is perfectly righteous okay nobody is perfectly righteous but when you look at people in this world who are good or bad that's what i'm talking about 
right? In this world, there's generally good people and there's generally bad people, but they will all fall victim to disaster if, if, if that's something they can't control. We know we can't control these things. Here's what's happening in Luke 13. In Luke 13, there's some people who are asking Jesus, in essence, did these people die from disaster because they were wicked? And of course, the other side of that question is why do bad things like natural disasters happen to good people? So let me read this to you. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, and he's using an illustration, he says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? And Jesus gives us an answer that I don't think satisfies us, but it is his answer. And he says, no, I tell you, in verse 5, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. What's happening? Well, there's a tower that fell and killed 18 people. Now, when a tower falls, that's a random act. It could be from an earthquake. It could be from the structure just wasn't structurally sound, and so there was an earthquake and the building fell. It it could have been a a, a fire uh, that caused the building to fall. But this is not something where, where you say, okay, I did something good, therefore that building shouldn't fall on me. Right? Or, or I did something bad, that's why God's punishing me and striking me down by causing this building to fall. See, the people are thinking in, in the way of the ancient world, where, in, in the way of karma almost, where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And Jesus says, this is not the way of life. This is not the way of salvation. And, and, and that's what he's saying. He's saying, do you suppose that the tower fell on them because they were worse offenders, but because they were bad people? No. And he, so now he's speaking to good and bad people, all people, and his disciples are listening, and the religious leaders are listening, and he's saying, no, I tell you, all of you, even the Christian, even pastors, missionaries, even people who lay your life down for the Lord, unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. This is a powerful passage. I remember after 9-11, being a college student at Biola University and, and knowing that that Sunday, I somehow had to go to a particular church because I wanted to hear what that pastor had to say about 9-11. And when I got to that church, I found out that that pastor wasn't going to address God's work or, or, or what God says about uh, 9-11 until the night service. But, but instead I went to their Sunday school, their large Sunday school, where there was a pastor preaching this passage, repent or perish. And I walked out of that campus that afternoon, not very satisfied apologetically, philosophically, not having the answers I wanted, but the message was very clear to me that this is the biblical teaching. It is, this word repent means to change. You see, that's what what Jesus is talking about in our Sermon on the Mount as well. He's talking about the heart. He's talking about being changed from within because repentance is not just an outward thing. Repentance begins with the heart and mind. And when our hearts are changed by Jesus and when we become new people, good works will naturally flow out of us. And so therefore, you see that it's not the good works that made us good people. It's not the good works that transformed us. It is not the good works that keeps us saved or makes us saved or saves us. It is Jesus transforming us that generates the good works. So if you are a saved, transformed 
person safe and secure eternally in the arms of God, and you happen to be walking down the street and a tower falls on you, you're saved, right? Regardless of your good works or not. And that's Jesus' point. Unless you change, and the the word repent means to turn. Unless you turn to Christ and confess your sin and confess that you need the spiritual life that he offers, you will perish. And this word perish here, there's several levels. There's the perishing that we all will perish. We will all physically die. Some of us, by God's grace, will die of old age. Others will die of calamity. Others will die of disease. Others will die of other means. But then there is an eternal perishing, which is the perishing of the soul, which happens to those who don't have a saving and restored relationship of God through Jesus Christ. You see, and and that's where we understand what the Lord is saying to us. It shows us the loss of physical life is painful. And that's why I said some of you have lost loved ones to COVID-19. Others of you are are, are maybe sick and you're worried. And and, and this, this is not to come off insensitively. This is to say that the loss of physical life is is terrifying and God has his hand behind this. And on the other side of being terrifying is his love. You see, his love comes in his warning. His love comes in showing us by allowing humans to get sick that we are, we are, that we are, we are not invincible, that we are not in control, and that when we need him. Every calamity pushes us closer to what we were created for, which is life after this life, eternal life, life eternal with God. So the loss of physical life, it shows us how little control we have, and it drives us desperately to Christ, and that's exactly where God would want us to be. And so for the believer, the Apostle Paul in another passage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, he reminds us of how God uses affliction and even the fear of death for him. This experience of of he might die, God uses these these afflictions and this suffering to cause him, his God's servant, to to rely on him. This is powerful because Paul is the servant of God, yet God uses affliction to shape Paul and to bring Paul closer in dependency to God. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, as if he received the sentence of death. Death was real to him. But that, meaning God allowing this and sending this feeling of affliction to Paul, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on on God who raises the dead. And so, beloved, COVID-19 shows us that we cannot stop death. And if you're a Christian, you know this. If you're not a Christian, this is the reality of truth. COVID-19 shows us that we cannot stop death. We can try to prevent it, but we cannot stop death. And here's the reason why. God doesn't stop death. Instead, he offers resurrection. Resurrection means to be raised from the dead, to have a power where you live eternally, where you overcome the physical death. And so the reason why God doesn't stop death is because he offers something better, which is you have to die in order to resurrect. You have to die to be raised up into new life. You must exit this mortal body to live unto the resurrected body just like 
Jesus had to die on the cross. And he had to be buried in order for him to show us that he overpowered death through his resurrection. So this global pandemic has been a loving wake-up call for many churches. And even with death and calamity, God's love is so evident because his love is holy. And holy love purifies and refines. Holy love doesn't always stop suffering and death. Instead, it purifies, it refines. And the cost of our repentance, the cost of our changed hearts is great because that is what we've seen in Scripture. You see, just like Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it is because lives are lost through COVID-19 that we will never forget this time in church history. We will not take this lightly. It is because jobs are lost and livelihood is impacted that we will not forget the weeks that we learned to lament and cry out to God for daily bread and to support each other. It, and it's in this process that God is teaching us to crucify all of our idols and learning to cherish Christ because when we emerge from this crisis, we will proclaim not our success, but we will proclaim that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. It is better than physical life. And so that's point number one. It is a warning for all people. And that warning is the death of the righteous awakens the repentance of sinners. How this points us back to the gospel is ultimately the death of our righteous Savior and Lord awakens the repentance of all of you who would believe in him. Now, point number two is our Sermon on the Mount passage. And this passage is directed specifically at the religious. If you'll take God's word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and here's the point. Point number two from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, 23, 21 to 23 is the consequence for false Christianity awakens true discipleship. So the consequence for false Christianity awakens true discipleship. In other words, God's warning of future judgment is both devastating, yet it is gently gracious at the same time. How? Well, it's because in seeing the consequence of false religion, any false security that we have in our good works is readily exposed. When we look at false religion, and when we look at the false religion that we see Jesus is going to explain, false Christianity, and we see that they did good works, and Jesus says that that was false, that their motives were wrong, that that's not good enough, that not only will they be condemned and judged, but they will be, they will be judged uh, fiercely or tremendously harshly, then it exposes any security that we take in our performance, our good works, our religious life. Right? So this is point number one. And so now let me read you Jesus' words, famous words, cutting words, convicting words. Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many, not just the false teachers, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some of your translations say those who practice lawlessness or those who practice evil. So here Jesus is exposing the false security that many people find in good works. Now don't get me wrong. Good works are necessary. Good works are the fruits of our genuine salvation. But the problem is some people perform good works for selfish reasons rather than than being motivated by the love of, of God, right? So there are some who bank their eternal security on their religious performance rather than the work of Christ on the cross. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23, this naturally includes the false prophets. Now, last week, Pastor Terrence did a great job preaching on the previous passage where, where he's talking, where Jesus is, is con- confronting the false prophets and the false teachers and using the illustration of, of fruits and trees and saying the false prophets are like bad trees that bear bad fruits and the fruit is in their works. Well, here you see that naturally this applies to the false prophets where they're actually doing good works, but the, the tree is rotten. Their hearts, their souls, their, their personhood is rotten. And salvation then only comes through Christ. So what I want you to see, though, that tucked away in these strong words of, words of warning for the false prophets and anyone who would, who would practice false Christianity is, once again, Jesus offering himself. I mean, that is the beauty of the gospel on display. The stronger the warning, you need to read between the lines and see who, who is the one proclaiming these words. Right? It's one thing for, for a preacher to preach words like this and to, and, and to, and to say, you know, people are going to be condemned to eternal judgment. It's another thing for Jesus to be the one saying these words. Because when you look at him, he's saying, look, I'm telling you, many, many of you will say, Lord, Lord, and, and I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And he himself is going to go to the cross to pay for the sins that of many. And even if these false prophets were to repent, Jesus would save them. He would completely save them and usher them into eternity. So what is ultimately gracious is that God doesn't give us a warning from afar. He gives us a strong warning. Then he, he comes himself. He sends himself in the person of Jesus to give this warning. How loving is that? Right? He comes himself to give this warning. And giving you a tangible, physical picture of the way out is through him. And then he himself goes and suffers to pay the price so that you wouldn't have to be judged if you would simply take heed to his warning. That's our Savior. That is why you see on one hand the the, the terrifying warning of God awakening us to his love, to the love of God in Jesus Christ. So Matthew 5 So first, a few things. When Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will uh, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. In Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus already explained that God is not going to relax one single requirement of the law. That whoever relaxes or violates the least of God's commands will not make it into heaven. So, when he gives this positive hope that, that, that many will say, Lord, Lord, uh, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, and we say, well, what does that mean? What is the will of the Father? We know that Jesus already said, well, 
you want to get in, you got to be perfect. You got to obey God's commandments and not break it once. You can't even relax it. And of course, Jesus knows that none of us, no human being can keep this. And so when you think about this, I want you to think deeper here. But the one who does the will of the Father, you understand that when he says, Lord, Lord, and on the day of judgment, there is one who has overcome, right? The one who does the will of my Father. Who is the one? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who perfectly does the will of the Father. Not your, not my will, but your will be done. And on the cross, he did cry out, Lord, Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Why did I not do everything that you've called me to do? Did I not perfectly and righteously do all good works? And of course, the Father doesn't say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, but he looks upon his son and he can't bear to stand looking upon his son and he has to turn away and his presence needs to depart temporarily, at least symbolically, because the son of God is bearing the vilest sins of all whom he is dying for, all of us. He's dying for us. He's bearing our sins. And so the one who is perfectly righteous yet suffers in obedience to the will of the Father, this is Jesus. Don't miss this. But the one, Jesus, who does the will of the Father will make it into heaven. So the only way to make it into heaven is to do God's will through and in Christ. That's the only way. It is the same message. Turn to him. Repent to him. Turn to Christ. And that is the only way, right? But it's important to realize where verses 22 and 23, who Jesus is talking to, where he's going with this. I want you to realize that, once again, that Jesus, in this particular warning, he's not talking to the atheist. He's not talking to ag the agnostic person. He's not talking about to the non-religious. He's talking to the religious and in particular, his aim is set. His target is clear. He's aiming at people who do things in his name. He, he's talking about false Christians, false Christian prophets, people who follow them, sadly, and anyone who would take pride or take security or find security in our religious performance or good works. And I think this is very convicting for anyone like myself who preaches the word of God, right? A false prophet? Do I take pride in my preaching? Lord, did I not preach thousands of sermons? Did I not visit the sick? Did I not minister to you? And Jesus, at the end of my life, is going to say, well, none of that matters if you don't have a pure relationship with me at home. None of it matters what the church sees. It's what happens at home. It's what happens in your heart. Where are you finding your security? Where are you turning your repentance? Are you confessing your sin? Are you genuine from within? Do you have Christ? Right, and so that's very clear. This is directed at religious Christians. Now, verse 21, he says, on that day, this is the day of final judgment. And that's what makes it scary. Lord, Lord. It's repeated twice. Lord, Lord. This is not just a term that conveys reverence. Lord, Lord, repeated twice, is supposed to convey a, a sense of intimacy, a sense of closeness with God. It's, it's supposed to signify a deep and genuine devotion to God. And obviously Jesus is saying, many of you are saying, Lord, Lord, you claiming to have a relationship with me, but I never knew you. I never knew you 
at a real level. I, I, I see your works. I see your church attendance. I see your offering, and that's great. And I see all the things that you've done. I, I see your knowledge, but I never personally knew you. I didn't have that prayer relationship with you. You didn't cry out to me uh, that much, maybe during crisis, and that's it. But for the rest of your life, you lived independent of me. You did not consult my word. You didn't listen to me, and you didn't talk to me, and I didn't talk to you. You pretty much went to church, but then you lived your own life, right? And, and again, this, is, this can apply to preachers and pastors as well, because that's the false prophets. Lord, Lord conveys this, this genuine relationship. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And notice that, that Jesus repeats it again, because they're going to say, but Lord, we did know you. Lord, Lord, we do know you. And he's going to say, what's the grounds of your relationship? How, what do you mean you had a relationship with Jesus? You had a relationship with me? What do you mean? He said, well, and then they, they start listing off great things that they've done for him. You see, already there, you see the security anchored on good works. You see, they, they start saying, but, but here's, here's what defined our relationship with God. We prophesied in your name. In Jesus' name. To prophesy is not a bad thing. It means to proclaim the oracles of God, to proclaim the word of God. And then to cast out demons, and we know that Jesus did that, and his disciples did that. And then to do many mighty works in your name. Didn't we do many mighty works? And in this context, most likely it refers to miraculous healing. Now, the issue is not these good works in themselves. Because prophecy exorcism and mighty works of healing were practiced by the apostles and and in the early church by New Testament Christians. Uh, to prophesy not only was to proclaim God's word, but in the early church where scripture was not readily available and, and written yet, to prophesy also meant communicating revelatory words from God and predicting God's work in the future. Right, So to give a word of God. And we know that these false prophets and the people who believe in them, they're going to go for the spectacular. Right? Notice the works that they're listing. They aren't listing, oh, I was hospitable. You know, I, I cared for the poor. They're, they're, they're looking at mighty works. So I don't think these false prophets were preaching the Old Testament in light of explaining how they point towards Christ. I think in Jesus' name, they are claiming to make predictions about the future. They are claiming to have a revelatory word from God. And, and they're saying, Jesus, we did this in your name. This is the false prophets that Jesus is confronting and predicting is going to happen during the New Testament times. And we see this example in Acts 19. Now, I'm not going to go there today, but you see examples of people trying to perform miracles in the name of Christ, but they are not genuine. Casting out demons in your name. Well, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, several ways. Sometimes Satan can, can counterfeit what is true and good. Other times, we don't know. People are just faking it, and there's, there's a fake show of, of healing. Other times, God allows miracles to happen. He allows people to be deceived, right? Because he knows that their hearts are hardened and they won't turn to him. And of course, many mighty works and healings apply in the same way. So the problem is not these good works. And the problem are not good works in and of themselves. The problem is grounding one's salvation in our religious performance. Notice that when, when Jesus says, what do you mean, Lord, Lord, you know me? That not one single one of them, at least in this passage, they don't say, but Jesus, here's why, here's why you gotta let me in. 
Okay, here's why. Because I know it's not even about heaven. It's because I trusted in you. It's because I, I, I clung to you with all of that I had. I had nothing but you. you. You see, none of them are saying that. None of them are saying, Lord, everything that I, I did was rubbish, but it's what you did on the cross. That's why you got to let me in, because I trusted in you. You see, when, the, when they're starting to list off all of their good works to justify themselves and to define their relationship with God, this is the complete opposite of Luke 18, where you have the tax collector pounding his chest, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me, because I'm a wretched sinner. Lord, Lord, have mercy on me, a wretched sinner. You see, so at a deeper level, Jesus is exposing the self-centered motive behind why some people perform good works. And you see this in verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus is is quoting and referencing words from Psalm chapter 6, verse 8. But in verse 23, he says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. Depart from me, meaning cast, you cast out of my presence. Remember what happened at the fall of man, right? Sin entered and the relationship was broken. And what did God say? He casted out. He casted Adam and Eve out of his presence. The relationship was severed and they needed to trust in the promise of the Redeemer who would come through the seed of Eve, right? In the same way, the casting out of demons, right? The casting out of evil, out of a person in a good and positive sense. But here, Jesus is saying, depart from me, be cast out of my presence because you are not saved. You are not redeemed. You are not of the promise. You do not have a relationship with the Redeemer. You workers of lawlessness. Now, some of the translations say those who practice evil or practice lawlessness. And when your translation turns workers of lawlessness into practice, that's because in, in the original language, there is this present participle which tells you that this is not a one-time mistake. These people had evil motives where they were continuously practicing lawlessness. Now that begs a question. Lawlessness? What does that mean? Lawlessness means evil. It means to rebel against the law of the Lord, to go against the law of God. But wait a minute. They're doing good works in the name of Jesus. And Jesus is calling that lawlessness, evil? And it's because he knew their motives. Because as good as our works are, our hearts, our hearts are blind sometimes to our inward motives, right? And how do we know that Jesus is going at motives? Because in Matthew chapter 23, so remember, Sermon on the Mount, we're in Matthew 7, Jesus is taking us towards the cross, and in Matthew 23, verse 28, he confronts the religious leaders of his day. And these are the false prophets of his day. And he says, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, inside of you, you're full of hypocrisy. And then he uses the word lawlessness. Inside of you, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I never knew you. Jesus says, depart from me. So how does this apply to us? I mean, most of us, most of you, I pray and I know you're not false prophets and false teachers. So for the Christian, the person who claims relationship with God, how does this apply to us? I think personally, I want to go personally, then corporately. What repentance, why Jesus is calling us to repentance. Personally, I know there's some of you who 
Maybe you've been away from church and you're back now and you found false security in something we call the sinner's prayer, meaning if God were to say, and you were to pass away and God were to say, why, you're a Christian, why should I let you into heaven? Where's your relationship with me? And you're going to say, you know, at some point in my life, some Sunday school teacher told me a good thing to confess my sin and to say something like this, dear Lord, uh, I believe in you. Please forgive me. I believe that you died and rose again. Please come into my heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. That's a good prayer. But then you went ahead and lived the rest of your life apart from God And now you're banking upon that good work. And you're going to say to God, well, God, did I not say the sinner's prayer when I was seven years old? Did I not say the sinner's prayer? Did I not walk in aisle at a a, a church camp when I was a high schooler? And and God's going to say, well, that's a long time ago. That's a long time ago. And and, and I know your hearts. And I know that that it's not genuine because of how you live. And maybe COVID-19 has caused you to come back and to consider making... uh, you know, making real on that commitment to Christ and turning back to him. Now, some of us and some of you, and I'm tempted to do this too, is that we find a false sense of security in our Christian service, right? No, honestly, really, we, we think, okay, look at all the things I do for God. Look at all the things, I, I, that makes me a pretty good person. But, but God cares about our personal devotion. So that would apply to, to most of you who are listening, that yes, Christian service is exemplary. It's good. It is necessary. But all forms of Christian service, whether it's giving, physical labor, ministry, missions, none of it gives us security. right? And, and that goes back to the repent or perish passage. None of that makes us secure. Only Christ gives us eternal security. And thirdly, I think some find false security in Sunday attendance and then financial giving in that regard, right? So so I mentioned in the beginning that maybe there's some of us that COVID-19 has given us a wake-up call because God has disturbed our jobs. He's disturbed our livelihood. It is easy for us in the Western church to have a pretty comfortable Christianity. For decades, uh, America has been able to offer a Christianity unintentionally. I don't think anyone's trying to offer a, a weak Christianity. And, and I think generally we're not saying that it's wrong that God has blessed us but I think Christianity is not hard. It, you can outwardly appear righteous as a Christian with minimal commitment. And we're talking about, you know, your lives. You come to church on Sunday. You do your Sunday thing. It's great. But Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday and Saturday, you're pursuing something else in your life. Right? You're pursuing other things. And so, so then you see where, of course, a large part of your life is that Sunday, Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon in your service. But again, that doesn't give us security. And we're not going to be able to look to Jesus and say, but Jesus, I went to church every Sunday or I put money in the offering plate or, or on online giving every Sunday. He's going to say, that was good and necessary, but I see your heart. Have you turned to me? Right? Good works are meaningless apart from a changed life. And a changed life is transformation. It is Christ transforming us. Repentance means to change. Repentance means to be transformed in Christ. I want to give you the big idea, and then I want to end with a corporate application. The big idea of this morning's message is that Jesus' warning against false Christianity awakens us to his terrifying yet transforming love. Let me say that again. Jesus' warning against false Christianity awakens us to his terrifying yet transforming love. It's terrifying because the warning is scary. It's terrifying. 
But in that warning, behind that stands the Savior who warns us 2,000 years ago. And that is a a love that he shows us through his warning and he's able to transform us. Now, how does this idea of transformation, repentance, and true Christianity in light of COVID-19 apply to us as a church? COVID-19 will change how people conduct church in the near future. And who knows how long until things will go back or if it will ever go back to the pre-COVID days. Just as 9-11 changed air travel, making TSA checks the new normal, nobody questions that now, right? Uh, It is the new normal, and our children will just assume that that's normal. COVID-19 will change the operation of churches. When we, saints, return to the building, it may be a small remnant for a while. Like Judah coming back from exile, all the former glory of FCBC Walnuts or any church that you go to, especially larger churches, all the glory as so we thought and felt will be gone. Maybe temporarily, maybe for a very long time, maybe permanently. Just like, just think of the people in Nehemiah's day coming back, having experienced Solomon's temple, coming back into the worship hall, and because of either government restrictions that you can't have more than 250 people, you're going to see that they're going to, they're going to, you know, do that in tiers, right? First, you can have 10, uh, 10 or less come back into church buildings and non-essential businesses. So you have pastoral staff working with social distancing and face masks on and, and a few people running operations, right? Then they're going to say, if you're 65 or older, maybe stay home, right? So that, that, maybe that's some of your volunteer force in any church. Then they're going to say maybe 50 people, and 250 people. Could you imagine that? Uh, our congregation here, you know, the English congregation, uh, one single service, anywhere from 450 to f- 450 to 500 people, but sitting in here, f- a limit of 50 spread out. It's not the same, right? And, and so, so whether it's the government, or the government's order, or whether it's the natural fear of uh, a natural and reasonable fear. You know, until there's a vaccine and even after a vaccine, some will prefer online services. Others will say, hey, you know, until that vaccine comes, comes, um, I'm, you know, I'm afraid of crowded spaces. This is not directed just at the church, but any crowded space. And so we have to understand this, that for us, For us, right? Just like the people in the Old Testament, God wanted his people not to look back at the glory of Solomon's temple, but to look forward to the new and true and better temple who would ultimately be Jesus Christ, the living, dwelling tabernacle of God. And God wanted his people to look forward to something completely new and different, but retains the glory of what the word of God proclaims. And so for us, for us, I believe the momentum of a new building, I had a lot of joy placed into that. I think God's still going to give it to us, but the momentum of a new building, a growing congregation, an overflowing service, an overflowing parking lot, all of the things that, that, that we were saying, look, look at all our ministries, look, we barely have parking space, all of that has been put on hold, and something tells me that those aren't going to be things that we are worrying about for the next half year or so, right? So if we as pastors, or if you take joy in any of that, then we're missing the point of maybe what God wants us to see. The economic impact will challenge churches 
that depend on charitable giving. That's all nonprofits and all churches. And hear me on this. Not just our church, but churches. We will be tempted. Pastors will be tempted to long for the glory of the pre-COVID days. Yet our goal and our aim will not be and cannot be to rebuild the glory of the past. Our security will no longer be in our performance, our size, our, the joy of our building, the security of our finances, and the list of our ministries. All of that, it's good stuff. God is going to slowly bring that back, God willing. But what I'm suggesting is that God wants to break us down back to the essentials of Acts 2.4.2. Consider the things that carried over onto virtual space, the Word of God, prayer, Right, the fellowship of the saints through online meetings, the only thing we couldn't do is break bread together and have table fellowship. But other than that, those are the things that are slowly going to come back in small waves into the building. And what God is doing is he's strengthening us. He's reviving us. We are exactly where God wants us to be, and we don't want to miss that. So let's not be tempted to, to just set a vision of going backwards to pre-COVID glory, but to go forward to what God would have. And future generations, beloved, will read about churches, not just our church, but churches going through this global crisis. What will the history books say? What will they say about our church? Beloved, this is our finest hour of trial. Big production has been minimized and only the essentials now stand. And my hope is that because of COVID-19, our children will grow up in churches with a new normal. My prayer is that church historians will write about how COVID-19 caused many churches to heed the devastating yet gentle call of Christ to repentance. Let our children see God's people love each other all the more because we've felt how painful it is to be torn apart. Never again will we complain about a, going to a fellowship meeting or having to get out of bed to, to, to go to a Sunday school where we can see people face to face or a small group meeting or a parking lot filled with people, right? Let our children see God's people love each other because we felt the pain of being apart. Let the next generation see churches that will never forsake gathering gathering in person because we've learned that video calls are no replacement for face-to-face fellowship. Let them see worship services, small or large, where everyone is singing from the bottom of our hearts because we miss hearing the voices of the congregation. Let our friends understand why fellowship, small groups, and community groups take priority over other activities because spiritual community is keeping us sane and comforted during this crisis. And most importantly, our mission, let every church prioritize our mission to proclaim God's word and prayer because God used the word of God and prayer to fuel our faith during this crisis. And so those are the things that I think we're going to hold on to. And so once again, I leave you with the big idea, Jesus' warning against false Christianity awakens us to his terrifying yet transforming love. That's what he's doing through COVID-19 and his gentle, loving, yet heart-wrenching, devastating, loss of life, reality, cost, good people dying. 
waking up the church, gently nudging us. That's what he's doing so that we would repent, which means he's going to transform us into the church that he envisions for generations to come. Beloved, will you pray with me? Father, we come before this passage, these passages this morning. These are hard passages, hard truths. But in light of COVID-19, we see the reality of what you're doing in, in pressing us forward. You are gracious to us in this. You're gracious to us in giving us warning. You are loving towards us and you are shaping us and transforming us. Will we take advantage of this season where we are in quarantine? Will we take advantage of this time to grow deep in the word and deep in prayer so that when you bring us back in waves, that we would be that faithful remnant that holds on to your promises so that we can continue to be the church that you've ordained us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.